0: Do you want to prevent worldwide diseases, promote human health, and break down healthcare inequalities? Well, check in with me, Jamie Kirkpatrick, and explore global health topics that affect you. With the help of our sponsor, Acura Incorporated, the leader in patient-first radiotherapy systems that make cancer treatment shorter, safer, personalized, and more effective, we'll check in around the world so you can be more informed and learn to affect change globally and for yourself. Regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on when it comes to the topic of global warming, I'm going to ask that you keep an open mind, as we discuss today the intersection of global health and global warming. In this episode of Global Health, Checklist for a Healthy Life and World, my promise to you is to steer clear of any political rhetoric and simply focus on issues related to global health. My source will be over 25 years of published reports on climate change from the World Health Organization, or WHO. From WHO's website, the Bulletin is one of the world's leading public health journals. It is a peer-reviewed monthly journal with a special focus on developing countries, giving it unrivaled global scope and authority. It is essential reading for all public health decision-makers and researchers who require its special blend of research, well-informed opinion, and news. To take a closer look for yourself, you can subscribe and read more in the Bulletin at WHO's website, who.int. My objective is to highlight the key output of these bulletins, which has boiled it down to four health risks that are a direct potential result of global warming and a less predictable climate. Are you as shocked as me to hear that the bulletin describes these hazards as diverse, global, and probably irreversible over human timescales? Well, what does that mean for our futures, our children's futures, and generations to come? By diving in deeper, we can start to comprehend the myriad of areas that global health and global warming potentially and actually collide. First, in 2017, Hurricane Irma, a Category 5 hurricane that devastated many parts of the Caribbean and the Florida Keys, required massive evacuations in many areas due to power outages and lack of clean water supply. Over 6.5 million Florida residents were evacuated, and over 60% were without power, my 80-year-old grandparents included. Do you remember hearing or reading about the devastating effects Hurricane Irma left in her wake, from the British and U.S. Virgin Islands to Cuba and Puerto Rico, with many other stops along her route? It seems it was the news topic heard around the world. Not only was Hurricane Irma famous for its destruction, it was also the most searched term on Google globally in 2017. Now this is just one example of the types of extreme weather, including floods, storms, and heat waves that according to the bulletin, include potentially more serious effects on things like infectious disease dynamics, which I'll cover in a future episode of this podcast, regional shifts to long-term drought conditions, the melting of glaciers that supply fresh water to large population centers, and finally sea level increases, leading to salination of sources of agriculture and drinking water. Salinity of drinking water? Have you even thought about this when you're guzzling your 8-ounce glasses of water every day? Sure, you might have a Brita pitcher in your refrigerator because you've heard it's better for you, but what if you live in Bangladesh? In the article Drinking Water Salinity and Raised Blood Pressure, evidence from a cohort study in coastal Bangladesh, published by Environmental Health Perspectives, millions of coastal inhabitants in Southeast Asia have been experiencing increasing sodium concentrations in their drinking water sources, likely partially due to climate change. High dietary sodium intake has convincingly been proven to increase the risk of hypertension or abnormally high blood pressure. The key word here is dietary, meaning sodium found in everyday products like chips, processed food, and the like. It is also important to note that the report does not go on to definitively state that drinking more sodium has the same impact that a high sodium diet has on our overall health. However, they do make the correlation that drinking water salinity or DWS, is an important source of daily sodium intake in salinity-affected areas and is a risk factor for hypertension. Considering the likely increasing trend in coastal salinity, prompt action is required. Sounds like an intersection of global health and global warming to me. Grab your water and take a swig, then you decide. Getting back to the bulletin's four points, the second potential point of collision is simply, and I quote, the health impacts of climate change are potentially huge. More specifically, many of the most important global killers are highly sensitive to climatic conditions. Malaria, diarrhea, and protein energy malnutrition together cause more than 3 million deaths each year. While trying to be unbiased and present both sides to every story here, this statement does come with its share of debate, especially when it comes to the possibility that global warming does increase the number of cases of malaria worldwide. To be fair, I did a little digging, and I went to Scientific American to learn more. In an article published by Zoe Corbin, titled Global Warming Wilts Malaria, with the subtitle, Transmission of Infectious Parasites Slows with Rising Temperatures, Researchers Find, it seems to imply exactly the opposite. So why is it when most believe that as temperatures rise, so will the spread of malaria? According to UNICEF.org, Malaria is the largest killer of children, killing one child every 30 seconds. That's about 20 children in the time span of listening to this podcast. That translates to 300 children per day. Mind-boggling, if you ask me. Back to the study. First, it was conducted with, well, you guessed it, rodent malaria, so it remains to be seen if it translates to humans as well. With that understanding, the implications of temperature change stand to challenge our original beliefs. It's not as easy to assume that warmer climates generate more disease-infected parasites, leading to the conclusion that with every bite, the transmission of malaria increases. Rather, according to Ms. Corbin's article, the latest study shows that temperature has a more complex effect. As temperature rises, parasites do develop faster, but fewer of them become infectious. The author of the study explains it is a trade-off between parasite development and parasite survival. And if you don't factor this in, I think you come to the wrong conclusions. Let's go on to the bulletin's third point, which focuses on the potential for the social injustice that arises when global health and global warming collide. Perhaps most of us can agree that inequality remains one of the key social injustices of our time. According to the bulletin, the health risks generated by a warming and a more variable climate are inequitable. Wait, still unclear? Follow this logic. If it's true that the greenhouse gases that cause climate change originate mainly from developed countries, the bulletin suggests that the health risks are concentrated in the poorest nations, which have contributed the least to the problem. Talk about unfair. Unfair, yes, but still easy enough to prove. Remember when we were talking about UNICEF and its deadly malaria statistics? Here's a heartbreaking example of that inequality. According to UNICEF, over 1 million people die from malaria each year. Mostly children under five years of age, with 90 percent of malaria cases occurring in sub-Saharan Africa. and you guessed it, more than 40 percent of the world's population lives in malaria-risk areas. Pope Francis took to Twitter to make his beliefs of injustice known on June 18, 2015, when he tweeted, "Reducing greenhouse gases requires honesty, courage and responsibility." Ha#leddatosi. For the curious listening in, "Laudato C si is Italian for praise be to you." This tweet led me to a pamphlet published by our Sunday visitor, entitled Our Common Home, which in their interview with Pope Francis says, Pope Francis pulls no punches when he writes that the earth cries out to us because of the harm we have inflicted on her, saying that the earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. He laments atmospheric pollution, a warming climate, a lack of clean water, the privatization of water, a loss of biodiversity and an overall decline in human life and breakdown of society. Never have we so hurt and mistreated our common home as we have in the last 200 years, he adds. In addition, Richard Williams, also known as Prince EA on social media, is a spoken word artist and said in his film, Man vs. Earth, that planet Earth is about 4.5 billion years old and mankind is 140,000 years old. If you condense the Earth's lifespan into 24 hours, that's one full day, then we have been here on this planet for three seconds. Three seconds. And look what we've done. So going along with Pope Francis, our Earth has become more like a pile of filth in only those three seconds. So is there a silver lining? Is there anything you and I can do? Thankfully, the fourth point made by the Bolton is exactly that. Many of the projected impacts on health are avoidable through a combination of public health interventions in the short term, support for adaptation measures in health-related sectors such as agriculture and water management, and a long-term strategy to reduce human impacts on climate. And I'm willing to suggest that there is even more hope that we can make a difference. It appears that the intersection of global health and global warming, according to the bulletin, is expected to lead to changes in existing health issues rather than the emergence of new and unfamiliar diseases. So if healthcare professionals are already familiar with what lies ahead, this implies we can get our arms around this. Our leaders in public health and public policy can work together to make the appropriate recommendations and changes in priorities when it comes to global public health. As we wrap up, where can you go for more information and find out how you, your community, or your organization can make a difference when it comes to the collision of global health and global warming. A good starting point is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC. According to the CDC, by 2006, many scientists had recognized the need to prepare for the impact climate change will likely have on health, both in the U.S. and worldwide. In 2009, the CDC formally established the Climate and Health Programme, whose mission is to lead efforts to identify populations vulnerable to climate change, prevent and adapt to current and anticipated health impacts, and ensure that systems are in place to detect and respond to current and emerging health threats. So point your browser over to cdc.gov and educate yourself. The best way to prevent a collision is to literally avoid one in the first place. And your challenge? Become a global citizen today. It would appear that nobody on this planet has a chance of being untouched by the impacts of global warming. Until next time, this is Jamie Kirkpatrick with Global Health, Checklist for a Healthy Life and World.